1: Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate effectively in difficult situations, both professional and personal. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. This week, we welcome Katura Rosado, a remarkable woman who joins us to share what she learned about communicating effectively during two difficult personal journeys. The first, her ongoing efforts to repair her relationship with her estranged father, and the second, her experience as a black but not African-American, woman living in the United States. Katura hosts a podcast of her own called The Social Recharge, which I'm sure you'll want to check out after you hear her interview here with us. And stay tuned after the interview for my recommended songs to accompany this episode. And away we go. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. Keturah, what is where does the name come from? It's a beautiful name.
0: <laughs>
2: Keturah is a Hebrew name, actually. For, uh, I have a Jewish friend who told me my name means the spices. Um, and in some other interpretations, it's the incense. And But the one he gave me was Sweet Fragrance Unto God. And so, of course, after hearing uh, an interpretation of a name like that, I definitely decided I'm going to... Try to live my life embodying the meaning <laughs> of that name. Yeah. So.
1: And you came from Saint Lucia. Yes. An island in the Caribbean. Tell me a little bit about how you came to the United States.
2: Who? How I came to the United States? Well, there's a lot of conflict around that. Um, <laughs> but I I grew up on Saint Lucia all my life until I was 16 years old. Um, And I loved my home, I loved my little life, and uh, there were many dreams and aspirations that I had, you know, like any other child. Um, But one of my biggest unspoken dreams was to see my mom and dad uh, together. They were legally married, but as far back as I can remember, there was always conflict. He He was involved in our lives, but uh, not in the way that I would have liked it to be. You know, every child, well, at least in my case, I would have loved to come home to mom and dad, but I always came home to mom. And if I wanted to see my dad, I knew where to find him. And the days that he chose to visit, then he came. But back in 1998, the conflict between my mom and dad had gotten to an all-time high. And unfortunately, there was a lot of domestic violence involved. What is kind of... Sad in this case is that my father um, was a law enforcement officer in his earlier years. And then he moved into uh, working in the fire department later on. And so there's a lot of camaraderie when you, you know, you worked in, in, in the department. So for my mom, the biggest challenge was, well, who do I go to? Who do I report you to? Because There was a, and also for many like cultural reasons, there was not much of an emphasis placed on a woman's rights as well when it came to things like domestic violence. And so, my mom felt that the only option she had was to run away and to leave. And so, in I believe it was yeah March actually March fourth, nineteen ninety eight. I remember the day (laughs) she um, she took off. Um, but she took off, and she she came to the to the United States, and shortly afterwards, I joined her. There was also a lot of trauma, a lot of traumatic events in my life at the time that led to my mom saying, "Hey, you know what? You're not even going to finish high school in St. Lucia. We're just going to bring you up, and we'll figure it out." And so, within a couple of days after some you know events had taken place involving my dad and uh, she. Uh, you know, she, she got me a plane ticket, one-way ticket, and I came to the United States. And, and what, a, what a culture shock.
1: So you came here you, with your mom. Your mom was here. Your dad uh, stayed behind in St. Lucia. Mm-hmm. I take it you were, you were estranged for many years. Yes. Did that, did that happen prior to leaving, or did you the communication stop after you arrived here in the United States?
2: So a few weeks prior to me leaving, I I made a vow, an inner vow, and um, it wasn't enough for me to make that inner vow. I I think I needed to let my dad know in the only way that I felt I could. At the time, uh, and I'll just kind of, you know, since then, my dad and I, we have resolved a lot of that, so I can talk about it. My father, in his in his, in, in what he felt was the best way he could communicate, he communicated his wishes to me through physical violence, very similar to what I had witnessed with my mother. Um, and he felt that I was going in the wrong direction. So he needed to teach me a lesson. But that lesson was a very painful one. And Um, It took weeks for my body to physically heal from that lesson. And so when my mom saw the physical evidence of that beating, which were, you know, pictures, bruises on my body, that's when she decided it doesn't even matter what tomorrow looks like. We're bringing you um, to the United States. I'll figure it out and, and we'll get, you know, we'll get through it. So right before I left, my mom, she specifically gave me instructions not to let my father know that I would be leaving. But I think there was a lot of anger and bitterness towards my father that I needed to let him know. And I wanted to see like, well, what are you going to do about it? I'm leaving. So um, I went to the fire station where he worked and I, 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 I let him know, I'm leaving, and you can't stop me, you can't tell me what to do, you can't. And at that time, because of what had happened, I had lost a huge amount of respect for him. And so I didn't speak to him as my father, I spoke to him as my enemy. But I made a couple of vows and I told him all the things he will never um, have access to in my life and in my future. And that was it, and I, I left.
1: That's about as difficult a communication (laughs) situation as as anyone can be in. Uh, I'm sorry that you you went through that. Uh, How old were you when you came to the States?
2: I was 16 16 years old.
1: So that's how old you were when you went and confronted your father. What was his reaction?
2: I think, looking back, and of course, I, I couldn't say then or back then that that's what it was. But looking back, I think there was a part of my father that knew, whoa, I I I went a little overboard with this child. You could tell that there was much he wanted to say and it took many years for him to actually, we, we've gone back to this period in time Uh, both of us. Now where I am healed and as an adult and understanding life from a different perspective than how I did back then. But he didn't say anything to me. All he said to me was, let me know how, let me know how it feels when you start getting arthritis in the United States. (laughs) That was the response to that. Because I think back then my father did not imagine that my mother would be able to thrive the way that she did. And for many years, she always needed him. She relied tremendously on him. My mom has a sixth grade education. Uh, She's a very wise woman, very knowledgeable, but on paper, she just has a sixth grade education. And so for him, I I don't think he ever was able to wrap his mind around how she would survive and how she would thrive.
1: well i would imagine he was somewhat shocked by your standing up to him the way you did and it's very common in difficult situations i found in the research shows when you're presented with with something like that although what you went through is is particularly traumatic to respond with humor many years ago research was done with doctors who were have had to have Uh, end of life conversations with their patients. This was long ago in the late 60s. It was actually the beginnings of the science of risk communication, which is what this podcast is all about. And one of the researchers in the field, Vince Cavello, who's been a real mentor to me over the years, uh, would set up a camera and simply record conversations, real conversations, where patients would sit down in a doctor's office and the doctor would share the news that they had a terminal illness and doctor cavello tells the story of one doctor who informed the patient that she was terminally ill she sat for a moment and sort of took in the information and news and then said well you know how long do i have the doctor sat for a few seconds without saying anything and then finally said well I wouldn't buy any long playing records which at the time people probably don't even know what that means now but they 45s and 33s and 78s so a record on a turntable that would play for 45 minutes or so on a side and of course this was absolutely the wrong reaction for a, for a doctor to have and the science shows that it's in a difficult situation, it's almost always wrong to respond with some sort of humor because it indicates to the person you're communicating with that you're not taking them seriously. It sounds to me, though, like in this case, your dad actually was was sort of stunned by the seriousness of, your, of what you were saying to him and really, I think, responded a lot in a way that a lot of people we know do, which is not exactly to crack a joke, but came pretty close to saying something funny in response. You and I have spoken, and I know that you have reconciled with your father, mm-hmm. which I think great news. And given what you've just told me, very courageous on your part, and, and his as well. Tell me a little bit about how that came to
2: be. That was a process that entailed many layers. Uh, when I was 31 years old, I was going through my divorce my i had been married for 12 years and the marriage was coming to a decline and there were a lot of factors around around the uh the breakdown of the marriage but i remember just and this is when my own personal development journey started unfortunately i hit a lot of valleys before i got to the mountain <laughs> before i got to that mountain top but I remember having a conversation with my sister, my older sister, she's about six years older than me. And she said to me, you know, a lot of the issues that you're dealing with, I can tell you right now, they stem back to your relationship with daddy. And really it was more of a lack of relationship with my father. I got to the point where I was cordial. I had been back and forth to Saint Lucia to visit over the twelve years, but we never we never really gelled. You know, it was just more of a okay. I I'm, I'm on the island. It would be rude of me to not go visit my father, so I would go see him, say hi. Um, but there wasn't much there wasn't much of that uh, endearment in the relationship. And But she said to me, she said, you need to confront a lot of these issues because you're going to run away from these problems and find that they are going to follow you consistently because the issues um, and, you know, over time I developed this thing where I say the issues are within the tissues. And so I, I went back and this was the very first time since I was 16 years old that I actually said to my father, you know, daddy, that really hurt what you did. Uh, Because not only was there the beating, of course, there was that, of course, the physical pain, but there, the way that it happened, there were many people who witnessed what my dad had done. So there was shame attached to it as well. In addition to the shame, life completely shifted for me as a result of that event. Now, it could have very well been possible in the future that my mom would take me. But because that was the circumstance that led to me leaving, I never, you know, there were many parts to it. I never said goodbye to friends who, I, I, who were dear to my heart uh, the last year of high school. All of these things that the average teenager looks forward to, those things were just ripped from me. But another huge piece of it was that I got married very young. I was 19 years old when I got married. When I got married, my three criteria for a good husband were very simple. If he didn't put his hands on me, if he wouldn't cheat on me, and if he would take care of me. Those were the three things that I was looking for in a man. Now, obviously, we know that there's so much more to a relationship, as uh, to a lifelong relationship, than just, will he cheat, will he beat, and will he feed me or take care of me? Um, but, I, but I also had that piece. And so when that piece, that piece, me really identifying, hey, your relationship with your husband is based on something that you were running to another man to give you that your father wasn't providing, But by then the relationship had gotten to the point where it felt irreparable. But I wanted to begin having these conversations with my father. He did not respond in the way that I had hoped. I was ready with my arms wide open to speak and to share and to let's comb through this. And he just gave me a nod of the head and said, you know, sometimes life is tough. And so that was disappointing three years really is when things started to 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 shift for me I had read a book by a man named oh dear I can't remember his name but it was the the whole essence of it was to love on purpose although the book was speaking about other relationships primarily relationships uh, spousal relationships everything kept bringing me back to my relationship with my father my father my father And that's when I began to realize there's a foundational piece that was missing for you that subconsciously you keep going back to that relationship with your father. And so um, I decided at at the beginning of this year, actually, to have this conversation with my father. And I knew my dad, he's now 70 years old. He's at a place where there's a lot he realizes about himself, the past, that we all know we can't take it back. It's already what it is. But I think there was a little bit of an openness, more of an openness than ever um, in the past. And also my communication levels, my communication styles and tactics have increased and, and they've improved to the point that now I could, identify the issues without making him feel like i'm ta- yeah like i'm attacking him the idea of if you give him out i don't know if you've ever read this this little book right if you give a mouse a cookie children's book and at one point i felt well i don't need to give you a cookie to my father of course i don't feel like i need to give you a cookie for getting it right or for doing or for you know for admitting to things that you should have admitted to, but then you know you think about how we train pets. We reward them, right? When they when they exhibit the behavior that we want. So, essentially, I started using some of these same tactics with my father and rewarding him in our conversation every time he would share something, every time he opened up, every time he was vulnerable. Um, I started doing that. And little by little, he started opening up. And I think the final piece of evidence for me that my dad was really at a place of genuine remorse, he said those words. Uh, he said to me, When the truth cannot be interpreted as beautiful, that is where forgiveness comes in, which was a very deep statement um, coming from him. But, and even if I know, I will never hear my father say, I'm sorry. This is his way of saying, I'm sorry.
1: The episodes of this podcast that hopefully people have listened to prior to this interview when it gets published are called, it's a two-part episode called Trust and Credibility. And it's all about how those two qualities are essential to any successful communication, whether it's a communication like you and I are having right now, or... It's communication that you and your father were having early on as you began to heal. And I wonder if there were any milestones along the way where you, where that trust and credibility sort of ratcheted up before you, before this, the breakthrough that you really just described earlier this year. Anything that your father said or did, or perhaps you said or did to him that might have pushed that door open a little bit more. if you want.
2: I think now that you mentioned it, I think, I think yes. Of course, when people look from the outside, looking in at the story between my mom and father, there's a lot of blame that you can just clearly throw right at my dad. But one day I said to him, and that was probably a year prior to that last conversation I just uh, referenced to you. I said to him you know daddy there's a whole lot that i did not understand as a child and we just saw your reaction to many of the circumstances between you and my mom and while i I was very honest with him i I don't think that i can't just say okay we understand each individual should be responsible for their actions responsible for how they respond to um, conflict um, I said to him, I can understand why somebody like you would have reacted the way you did towards my mother. Not that it is right, but taking a look at some of the other pre-existing factors in your life and pre-existing, pre-existing uh, situations that w- where I saw clearly that you yourself, dad, were missing certain guardrails in your life. I could understand why this would be your choice of action. Um, and, he said, and, and he said, well, that doesn't make it right. I said, absolutely, it doesn't make it right, but I can understand. So I think to some extent, my dad needed to know that we're not looking at him like this monster. Because the actions were monstrous actions. Um, but you know, I think about it this way. Let's say my dad happened to be in a room full of his former coworkers. He would be hailed as one of the best supervisors that they know. My, right. my father rose up the ranks in his, um, in, in his uh, field of employment. If he happened to be in a community of people where he, he helped them out a lot, whether financially or helped them to get ahead in certain areas of life that life did not permit for them, if I went to anybody and said, hey, tell me what you think about, you know, and I give them my father's name, they would have a number of wonderful things to say about him. So so I think what I had to start doing was remove myself from the equation as the person on the victim's side, right? And try to identify, well, what are some other things about this person that are true that's Are side by side with the truth that that does exist for me, which is ugly, which is not pretty, uh, which which at some point in my life was painful, but identify, well, what are some other good things that I could I, I could bring into the dialogue with him so that he can feel comfortable enough leaning on those things to have a conversation with me where that that goodness, so to speak, did not exist. Thinking back on it now, but I realized a lot of that had to happen and not just with my father Um, but in others in other scenarios for me as well I've I've dealt with quite a bit of conflict here in america. I, I walk around in brown skin and, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and So, so you know
1: um, I'm gonna change topics here in a, in a minute to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, but i'm go ahead
2: yeah but I think I think all identifying other places where people's goodness can shine through uh, that helps tremendously. and I saw it with my dad and I've seen it in so many other um, other instances for myself
1: so it it sounds to me if I'm hearing you right, that you work to create a safe space for your father to step into somewhat empathetic that where he could feel comfortable communicating in a different way with you.
2: Definitely. And, you know, perhaps maybe later, I'll share this acronym that I, that I developed for myself and I use with, with some of the people I work with as well. And it really, it really helps, you know, and it it comes to, you know, bold power, but I'll, I'll, if if time permits, I'll share a little bit about it.
1: One other issue I wanted to make sure I, we got to, and, and you just mentioned it, you're a black woman in the United States, but you're not African-American because you came from the Caribbean island. I guess we should mention St. Lucia's in the Caribbean. I guess I'll start off by asking, I assume most people who meet you just assume that you're African-American and and therefore come at things with a particular point of view. Is that fair to say?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Coming, coming to America, I... I mean, I've always known that I was Black. Like, that, that was never a secret. But, <laughs> yeah. but I think my experience with my identity being Black, it shifted tremendously for me when I came to America. I, I have experienced some very overt instances with racism and discrimination, stereotypes, all of, you know, the, the whole gamut. But I've also had some wonderful experiences with people where I can genuinely say, wow, the world is full of wonderful people. What I have had to do, not only in most recent times, but throughout my time here in America is try to live with the genius of the end and not the tyranny of the or, so to speak. And what I mean by that is, on the one hand, I could say, okay, people have been so terrible towards me. And I can take that and make a broad judgment about an entire group of people. And then what that would end up doing is it would really prevent me from experiencing the fullness of life and joy that I can potentially experience. However, I know that for another person, how they will interact with that same truth, it's different. I think for me, because I spent 16 years living in another country where my identity was affirmed by other factors, not just my race, I think that plays a huge part in how I respond or have responded to whether covert, overt, or systemic racism. The second thing is that I came here as an immigrant, and I've always been legal in the country. I've always had my documentation, always had my papers, so to speak, but, I always, somewhere on, uh, uh, in the undercurrent of my thinking about life here, I've always remembered that, hey, you are an immigrant here in this country. And there, I, I guess it kind of presented this barrier for me where I could say, you know what, this is part of American culture. And this is the part of American culture that you don't want to be part of. And caused me to now actively seek other aspects of American culture that I wanted to assimilate into and assimilate with. But on the other side of it, there's a reality that I, even I walking around in black skin will never know and never be able to fully 100% identify with because I don't have the history of a grandmother or a great grandmother or a community sharing stories with me of experiences that they've had and so i always say you know i came to america when i was tall enough and strong enough to carry the invisible burden on my back without it hunching me over so to speak but then a fourth point to that is from a mental health perspective uh, and this is This is me trying to be as objective as I can be. One of the things that I've observed is that there are stories that we tell ourselves and our belief and our interaction with the world is also going to be shaped by these stories that we're constantly telling ourselves. And I'll use a story with my daughter. My daughter is biracial. And when we were younger, and, you know, I was in my 20s and she was probably four or five. We, we used to be in the stores all the time, just going together. And my daughter, one day she looked at me, she said, mommy, why are people always looking at us? And I had to choose in that moment how to answer the question. And I knew that if I said, well, because you and I looked different, then all of a sudden now that would become a reality for her. And I think that was what I responded with was divine wisdom. But I said to her, they're looking at us because you're so beautiful, sweetheart. I chose in that moment what I wanted my daughter to focus on and what would become You know, peripheral to her. I didn't want the race conversation to become her focus. If anything, let it be peripheral. Now, there are realities that over time as they grew up and as they had a A a greater and broader sense of understanding and a capacity to interact with information in a way that it would not devastate them that I've had to share with them. But I think I cannot say for anybody how they should enter the dialogue of race in America and um, inequalities and all of the things that 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 there's evidence of but I think that there are times we can not trying to we can we can actually re-traumatize ourselves with the dialogue that we're having, the internal dialogue that we're having.
1: You mentioned that you can't tell anyone how to engage in conversations obviously right now it's it's very difficult
2: yeah definitely i think i think we all we all have a level of responsibility to ourselves and to one another accountability is, is a huge one you know, I usually share with, I, sh- I share this framework with my, my, my clients and it's, it's a 4A system that I use and it's basically making specific shifts in the way we're interacting, whether with information or interacting in relationships. And it's, you know, you're shifting your attention, shifting your awareness, your application and your level of accountability. We so easily can have our focus on the one thing which is our reality and i don't think we have to apologize for that but then now moving into that awareness like okay well what is my reality does that reality negate another reality or does that reality really support another reality that 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 exists and how do we How do we work towards making that those two realities exist side by side? Or if there's a merge or a fusion happening, then how do we do it? And in the application portion, it's really what are the steps that we're going to take? Um, And within those steps that we're going to take the for the application, my focus with my clients is on having bold power. And I'll just go down the list of what each uh, each letter symbolizes. The P stands for posture of heart. The O stands for ownership. The W stands for worth. The E stands for empathy. And the R stands for renewing of the mind. I'll give an example. When I lived on an island, I had an idea of white people. And the reason for that ideology was because the white people that I knew were either missionaries or tourists or doctors without borders. So it's easy to have an opinion on white people based on my interactions. But then there is so much more to learn. And just really grappling with that, like, and especially if there's one thing outside of everything I'm sharing, if there's one thing I could recommend is that we really all um, empathize with one another, but not the overly empathetic type of empathy that makes you feel guilty for you know, privileges, for example, like, I'll give you an example, my husband, the man I'm married to is a white man. Should he apologize for being white? Should he apologize for white privilege? Should he like go down the list of all the things that are realities? But sometimes a white person has more money because they work hard. You know, they really work hard. They have discipline, they have ethics and, 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 and you shouldn't have to apologize for that. But I think it's important to be aware that there are some people who may work just as hard and there are other circumstances that make it a little difficult for them. But even, even, even with that reality that I just mentioned, I still think that we all have to strive as best as we can to contribute the most that we can. And, oh dear, I, ho- I hope I don't start getting too political, right? But when I think about life is full of challenges, no matter who you are. For a person who walks around in brown skin and kinky hair like mine, the challenge may be what it is for us. But I cannot take the fact that my challenges with ideas about my race that people may have and make it more significant than another person's challenge. Because the reality is that I, my husband may never have to battle with race in America, but there are other things he has to battle with that will never be an issue for me. I walked into this country speaking two languages and there are so many people who will never have the privileges that I have because I speak more than, now I speak three, but they will never have some of the privileges that I have because I speak a different set of languages. So, you know, looking at it from that perspective, my, well, let me answer your question first and then share the one piece of thought. I think if anybody wants to have open dialogue, it's not about having thick skin because these conversations will always ruffle our feathers. But when you have a healed heart, it is easy to have a dialogue that could seem like the sparks are going off. But if your heart and the posture of your heart is in the right place, then you can hear what the person is saying. And yeah, it may sound offensive because they're saying white people and here an ind- individual is listening. Well, I'm not one of those people. Well, guess what? We know you're not one of those people. But the same goes for Black people. If somebody's making a comment and they have a genuine question and they ask about Black people, the same way you don't want to be the spokesperson for Black people, you can't expect another person to sit with being the spokesperson for another race and just be totally okay just because you're frustrated, because we're all human. We're all human, um, you know? And so, so that's, yeah, that's that. I, I left the political conversation out. I, <laughs> I found a way to.
1: <laughs> you mentioned empathy and that's something that I emphasize as well with my clients. The importance of being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and demonstrate to them that you've you, you not lived their life. You haven't actually walked in those shoes. But you can understand where they're coming from because you've had similar experiences, similar challenges, similar opportunities. So that really resonates with me and I think is just vitally important it, in any communication, but especially in a difficult situation. Uh, you've, just, you've got to be able to express that. And I spend a lot of time with my clients. You can't really teach somebody to be empathetic, but you can sort of show them why it's so important and get them to think about it. Uh, that way. Zoom's going to shut down on us here. Uh, thank you so much for, for giving me this time. To, uh, but tell, take maybe 60 seconds to tell us about your podcast.
2: Oh, well, I host a podcast. It's called The Social Recharge. And The, the Social Recharge is the name of the agency that I, I run, that I started, which is geared towards helping women identify and utilize the mental health tactics as well as the mindset shifts that will help them excel in business relationship and in life and during the month of july actually i don't know when this episode is going to be aired but i have uh, decided to go way outside of my comfort zone and i'm interviewing police officers and my reason for that is really because we're hearing a lot and of course what happened most recently with the police officer and uh, George Floyd, it set us on this uh, avalanche almost of, of events, which, you know, uh, I, I'm sure depending on where we are on the spectrum everybody may have a different opinion but I believe with all the conversation about police reform um, especially for the the women that I, I work with I mean I deal with a lot of women and many of them are dealing with challenges as it is already so I know that for moms the conversation about police and their sons or police and you know not only their sons if their sons are black but moms of police officers what are the you know what are some of the areas that really as we talk about doing life together and doing it well what are some conversations that we definitely should be ha- having so i believe we cannot have police reform without police <laughs>
1: That's very
2: true. yeah so 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 for the month of july we're talking and i and i have a quite a broad spectrum. We have men, we have women, we have uh, international, we have different races, different backgrounds to, to really, you know, chime in on the dialogue. But, but for the most part, the, the podcast is about mental health and mindset building.
1: Thank you so much for your time. This was just fascinating and let's keep in touch.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Now on to our wrap-up activities. Since we focused today on personal journeys, I thought I'd share my top four songs by the band Journey. Coming in at number four, it's the power ballad, Open Arms. At number three, we have Faithfully. Number two is Any Way You Want It, which wasn't written for the legendary movie Caddyshack, but is probably best known coming from that movie's soundtrack. And coming in at number one on Len's list of best Journey songs, of course, is Don't Stop Believing." As someone who went to college in the early 1980s, just a short 45-minute drive from South Detroit, I didn't have any choice. Hey, if you have any good Journey songs to share, please send them to WTSWTGT at gmail.com, and I'll mention them in a future episode. You can send other questions there, too. Follow us at hashtag WTSWTGT. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks again to Jim Cirillo at jimiumgroup.com for our original music. And thank you to CeCe, what do you mean, Snetsinger for the original art? Till next week, always be positive.
0: This is the story of the one.